0: Well, we've been in John's Gospel for quite some time now, haven't we? And um, there is a sense in which um, being in one Gospel or one book of the Bible um, can ultimately get weary um, because it seems like it's the same stuff over and over and over again. And quite frankly, I think there is some truth to that in particular in the Gospel of John. Um, It's a little like taking someone to Yosemite for the first time. Anyone here ever been to Yosemite? I hope so, all right? If not, we can take you for the first time. But, you know, you take someone from out of, the, out of maybe the state or even out of the country and you, you tell them about Yosemite and how, how awesome it is and how beautiful it is and just all the incredible trees and the, the moors that are up, out there and um, the, the rock formations and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of talk about... Uh, just all that is up there, the valleys, the meadows, the streams, the rivers, the lakes. And and as you're driving up there with them, and they begin to see the trees. They're sitting back. I was like, wow, look at those trees and look at those rock formations. Oh, this place is cool. And you're slowly kind of getting yourself up there and the trees get thicker and then you might see a lake off to the side or a river kind of going along the road and it's like, wow, this is cool. And you, you stop off and you, you take a look and you take pictures and you go some more. But after a while, a tree looks like a tree. And a rock formation looks like a rock formation. And a meadow's just another meadow. And you turn a corner and there's more trees and more rocks and more meadows and, you know, maybe another big valley and, and more trees. And after a while, the same person that was saying, hey, pull over, I want a picture, says, you know, I think I'm going to take a nap, you know, as you're driving through. Because it becomes familiar what was good. What was healthy, what was beautiful, what was picturesque is now just part of the fabric of where you are. Now, maybe you're catching the picture that I'm trying to paint here, and that is that the Gospel of John is like that. Boom, it starts out with, wow, all these themes in the prologue, and then we start jumping into the actual narrative of the Gospel, and we start to connect ourselves with a number of trees and meadows and valleys and and just beautiful sights to see, and then it just seems like, ah, repetition, repetition, and and the freshness might disappear. And I think it's important for us at least to recognize that that is one of the things that is going on in John's Gospel. Um, He is purposed to paint a picture of Jesus with a brush that gives us evidence after evidence, and ultimately that evidence that leads to belief and then to life, And uh, it just seems to be repeated over and over and over again. And so we are tempted to say, okay, John, I get it. I've got it. I understand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. But I want you to think about this idea of John's gospel being like a spiral staircase. And a spiral staircase, of course, you know, winds its way up. And think about it beginning with you know, some key truths that are laid out in the prologue, so to speak. Those first 18 verses. And what are those truths? Just think about them. The Word, flesh, darkness, light, belief, life, unbelief, blindness, and a few others. He introduces them, and you kind of go, boom, wow! And you're faced with these things, and you start to walk up this spiral staircase... And what happens in John's gospel is that John presents these things, but then he kind of winds around, and he brings comes back to a theme. And he adds to that theme. He adds to that fabric. He adds to that body of understanding and knowledge. And then you continue on, and you continue to wind around. And he's adding to these various themes that are there. And you come around again, and I'm back here at this same theme again. It's not, though, just repetition. It is purposeful repetition that adds as it goes to that body of knowledge and information. So repeating these things, adding to them, is what John desires to do. He is purposefully doing that because he's presenting Christ. And there's some benefits to this methodology. The first benefit I would say is this. The mystery of Jesus, the Son of God, um, comes to us in bite-sized pieces, so to speak, so that we can, we can handle things one step at a time. It's not just like, okay, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and, and life and just force it all into a text. He, he gives you this information just bit by bit by bit as he is you know, adding to that body of evidence. And repetition, of course, is a great way to be convinced, to memorize, and to have a solid foundation. Now, here's another one. Anyone who comes and visits this church as we're going through the series literally can just jump on the staircase because usually what's been covered is being further disclosed and is going to be connected to what's already been said in the gospel. So if we're we're looking at the subject of light, we're going to say, hey, wait a second, didn't that come up somewhere in the beginning? Yeah, it did. There's darkness, light, and that theme is throughout the book. So you're going to be able to kind of go back and connect to it. So for those of you that may not have been here at the beginning, it's okay. It's not like you're losing out. Now, Some other books, it might be more difficult. But in John's Gospel, anyone who's coming can just jump right in and be a part of walking up the staircase. That's a real benefit to us um, as, a, as a church family. So wherever you are in joining us, be assured that you are able to enter at any time and benefit fully. Now, let's go, back to, um, let's go back to Yosemite. Let's just talk about some of the beautiful sites that are in Yosemite. Not all of the beautiful sites in Yosemite can be seen from the road as you're driving. In fact, some of the sites, some of the best sites, require you get out of the car and that you hike, and that you hike for a few miles out off the beaten path, into places you can't get into with a car until you get to a place you come over some kind of a ridge and you see a beautiful lake with all this wonderful formations whatever it might be and those of you that have probably done some of those hikes know what I'm talking about it requires a little bit of hard work it requires some effort and friends there's a sense I get as we as we go through this discourse in particular on the bread of life, that it seems to be repetitive, it's talking about Jesus as the bread of life, and we get that, we understand that means his satisfaction by, by providing himself as that satisfaction, and he ultimately is the one that we are to be satisfied um, uh, by and in. And it seems a little bit wordy, maybe a little heady, and honestly, it's just difficult. And I just want to encourage you, we want to press on. We want to press on because just like that hike, we we don't just want to stop halfway and say, ah, you know, I'm going to turn around and go back. You you will regret that. And although sometimes studying the Word of God can be difficult and you might be tempted to tune out in your mind, I want to encourage you, press on. And in particular, in this text today, because this text will have for us, it will bring to us face-to-face with some beautiful doctrines um, that uh, have really strengthened the church through the ages. I think a, a doctrine that, that God has used to teach me in my walk with him, in particular a doctrine that has liberated me from the bondage of legalism and the carrying of unnecessary guilt. And I'm going to refrain to tell you what that is because I want us to discover it together. I wasn't expecting this. What, what I found this week in my study, I was not expecting. And yet it is a wonderful glorious gospel that God has revealed to us. So I want to begin in John chapter 6 and verse 60, John chapter 6 and verse 60, because although this is not technically in our text, it is the verse right after where, where we left off here that J.D. read, it really is the beginning of the next part of Jesus' discourse with his disciples, but what they say speaks to what's going on here with the Jews who are in the synagogue. So it says there, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This this statement, this is a hard saying, gives us an awareness that there was difficulty among those who were listening to Jesus about what was being said. What is the it that the disciples are struggling with and saying? This is a hard saying. The it refers back to all that Jesus has said and taught about being the bread of life, and what the bread of life does. Okay, so this is, this is going back. They're listening to all that Jesus is saying, and they're saying, ultimately, this is a hard saying. How is it that this can be true? How is it that we can actually do this? Let me try and summarize some of those themes. We found out already that the bread of life is superior to the manna that God provided in the wilderness, right? We found that the bread of life endures rather than perishes. We found out last week in particular that the bread of life was sent from heaven by the Father, has the seal or authority of the Father. That bread of life satisfies the spiritual hunger of mankind, and that bread of life ultimately is a person. It is the Son of Man, and that would be Jesus himself. So all these, these truths are being taught, are being laid out in this discourse reflecting back as a result of the miracle that Jesus did with the feeding of the 5,000 or the 20,000. So this is a hard saying. It's a hard saying the crowds had difficulty with. And quite frankly, they were blind to what they were observing and what Jesus said because they had their own agenda, they had their own idea of Jesus being this prophet, this king, this hero that could go and overthrow Rome. And we're going to find here that it's a hard saying for the Jews. And there are two responses now that the Jews have to the the hard sayings of Jesus as the bread of life. There's two responses. And they really flesh out the statements that we have in this text. Uh, The first one you're going to find there in verse 41. The second one you're going to find in verse 52. And the first one is grumbling and arguing. Grumbling and arguing. Now, it says disputing in the text, but the idea there is, is arguing. So what they're struggling with and their response and ultimately is the fact that Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, I am the Son of Man, I've been sent from the Father, I have the seal of the, the Father, and I am the one who will ultimately satisfy. By implication, using the analogy of himself as the bread of life, he is saying, eat this bread of life in order to satisfy that hunger. That hunger needs to be satisfied by eating um, the bread of life. Ultimately, that is is me. Now, this is not to be taken literally. This is a metaphor, right? This is figurative language. But the Jews did not like his teaching, so ultimately they grumble and they argue. Now, as you look at this, here's the story of Jesus being the bread of life, the comparison of himself to the manna has already taken place, and there's a connection here between what Jesus is saying is offered to you Jews as the bread of life, reminds us of then what God provided for the Jews in the wilderness. Remember that story? All right. Go back then to the book of Exodus in chapter 16. We're just going to be real brief here. Exodus chapter 16. And I want you to notice verse 2. Exodus chapter 16. It shouldn't be Genesis. It should be Exodus chapter 16 and verse 2. Here's what it says. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here they are in the wilderness. What is one of the themes of their attitude and their behavior? It's grumbling, right? Then jump to chapter 17 and verse 2. Same greater context in the wilderness. God's providing manna. He's taking care of them. Verse 2 of chapter 17. Therefore the people what? Quarreled with Moses. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? That the Jews that Jesus now is speaking to respond by grumbling and arguing or disputing or ultimately quarreling. All right? There is a sense here that, that even in their behavior, that John is bringing out kind of this connection to this Old Testament reality of God's provision of manna as being kind of this, this typological looking forward to ultimately Jesus being the one who is the ultimate satisfier of man's spiritual hunger. So there's this beautiful connection that is going on here. Even in their grumbling and arguing that lets you know that this is not just an isolated book. That this, this, this gospel is connected to the rest of Scripture in particular to the Old Testament. And the passage in the Old Testament that talks about man needing to be satisfied by God and being helpless in God's provision, taking care of them. Because how are you going to feed that multitude in the wilderness? only way it happened was because of God and the manna he was providing. So, in a similar way, the Jews then are grumbling and arguing. Now, uh, a number of years ago, I had the privilege of going to, um, going to Moscow and visiting the Kremlin. Anyone ever visited the Kremlin before? They have a Kremlin museum. And um, I enjoy that kind of stuff, and I wanted to go up there and see this Kremlin museum. And I was expecting to see pictures and memorabilia of Boris Yeltsin, you know, with you know, some vodka or something like that, and... Brezhnev and Gorbachev and Stalin and Lenin, all those guys. And there was some of that stuff that was there. But what I found on display were more things like paintings and chairs and, and tables and beds and tapestries. I know, just really exciting stuff, right? And, and things like candelabras. So, we're taking a step further here, you know, really, really interesting stuff. Um, carriages and sleighs, uh, all used by the, the royalty, you might say, all used by the, the, the czars of history. Various kinds of clothing. But my favorite section in that museum had to be the armory, where you go in and you see all the swords and the spears and the lances and the maces and the axes and the shields and all this, this armor. And I was actually kind of surprised that a lot of the armor had kind of a, kind of a Genghis Khan kind of a, kind of a theme to it. and just reminded me that there's a lot of history in Russia that may not be quite European. It's even, you know, Eastern in that sense. But... Going through all of that, there was one room in particular that was like the prize collection. And that prize collection was the crown jewels. And as you walked in there, you saw various ornate things like, you know, swords, but the, the, the um, the scabbard of the, of the sword was just covered with all of these different beautiful jewels and crowns that had just all these beautiful jewels. And I, I, just, I want us to think about God taking us today into a place where there is a cabinet, and in that cabinet is this text. There's so many other things that we could be looking at, but he's drawing us today to a particular display room, and in this cabinet is this text, and in this text there are two crown jewels, so to speak, crown jewels of the gospel that we want to see here that God is revealing for us. So let's, let's just pause for a minute here and just ask God to give us a, a picture and a wisdom of what those things are and to allow those beautiful jewels to really settle in our hearts today. Lord, I, I am simply your messenger today. Would you allow us, Lord, to feed on your word, speak to us, shape us, change us, Lord, May we be conformed to your image, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. These two crown jewels are to be found by Jesus' two responses. And the first response is in verse 44, where Jesus basically says, Listen, unless or if ABC happens, then I will raise that person up on the last day. In verses 53 and 54, unless or if XYZ happens, I will raise him up on the last day. What we want to figure out is what is the ABC and what is the XYZ because ultimately we want to be raised up in the last day, right? So this is the, this is the impact of what Jesus is saying as he responds to the grumbling and as he responds to the arguing that's taking place. He's presenting two truths that really give us a wonderful picture of the gospel, two gems, you might want to say, that sit in the crown of the gospel. So our journey and joy this morning will be to discover the ABC and the XYZ. So let's, let's, uh, let's jump ahead then into this passage. The Druze grumble at his teaching. Now, let me clarify here. So far in the discourse, we've looked at Jesus' interaction with the crowds. And I'm taking that as a word that just kind of is encompassing Everyone. Now, whether that took place just in Capernaum and somewhere there, or it actually all took place in the synagogue, because we know that this is where he is now, the point is that the, the audience was broader. The audience now thins out a little bit. It becomes a little bit more of a focus group. The Jews here are the religious Jews. These are the ones that are the, the holders and the keepers and the maintainers of tradition and, and the religious system of Judaism there in Capernaum. Okay. And what we're told here is that they are grumbling. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they're struggling with his statement, but the reason they're struggling with the statement, the basis of their struggle really is found in verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, we, we know, Jesus, you didn't come down from heaven. And the reason we know that is why? We know that because your mother and father we know. So again, they're just looking at it purely from a human perspective. We know your parentage. We know where you come from, but you certainly didn't come from heaven. It's almost as if they're saying this as as dogma. I mean, they're digging their heels in. We know. We know perfectly well where you came from. You can't fool us coming here and saying that you're the bread of life and all that kind of stuff. You, we, you we know where you came from, right? Now, they're, they're, the certainty that they knew um, was the reason why they were not able to accept the claims of Jesus, and they began to grumble. Now let's look at Jesus' answer to their grumbling. Contrary to contemporary thought, that might kind of step back and say, oh, we don't want to offend and we don't want to cause any trouble here. Jesus goes for the jugular. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. In other words, you really don't know what you're talking about. You really have no clue about what you're saying. Your pride is blinding you from the truth. Let me tell you what you should be thinking about. Let me tell you what you should be consumed with, what your minds should be contemplating about when you hear me identifying myself as the bread of life come down from heaven. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The sovereign God of the universe is the one who draws people to himself. And unless you are drawn by the Father, you will not be raised up on the last day. He's saying this first and foremost to the Jews who are there, grumbling. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has said this. Look back at chapter 6 and verse 37 in your Bibles. Now, he says the same thing, but a little differently. He says there, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He's saying the same thing, but a little differently. He's saying in verse 44, the Father what? Draws. In verse 37, he says the Father gives. In verse 37 says, and all that he gives I will never cast out. The Father gives, the Father draws. They come, I will not cast out. You are in, you are secure, you are taken care of. So the Father both draws and he gives. He draws people to Christ, he gives people to Christ. This is ultimately known as the doctrine of divine election. This is not something that is taught just an isolated, you know, one isolated place. This is something you're seeing brought up over and over and over again. Jesus says very clearly here, it's the Father who does the drawing, right? Am I adding to the text here? No. It's what he says. And he's ultimately saying here, you can't come to the Father unless what? Unless he draws you. In other words, it's God, the Father, who does the drawing. That might want to say the pulling, the pulling in. Now, you may be here today as a child of God, and as you look back over your life, you can see the footprints and the handprints of God's providence on your life. Carefully guiding, carefully directing, as uh, you know, you, ultimately you to Christ and his glorious gospel. You, you, you couldn't have orchestrated it. Only God could have done it, but it, it, was, it was something you weren't looking for necessarily, But God was at work drawing you to himself. He was at work drawing you in order to give you to Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here to the Jews. That's what ultimately he is saying to us here as we think about how this this passage applies to us. So the doctrine of divine election, however, has been and still is a hard saying to many um, in the church. And many have difficulty embracing it. It's a hard saying. Because it seems like if God chooses me, if he's drawing me, if I am the gift of God to Christ, then don't I have any say in that? Or is it just some robotic thing that I'm just kind of, you know, one over here, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, get, all the, you get all the pawns and you get the bishops and you get the, I mean, is that, is that how, how simple it is? No. We've got to be careful. We're not trying to understand things from a human perspective. Um, mindset, where, where we just are limited in our understanding. We're talking about the God of the universe who does what he does with excellence. There is nothing that God does in a sinful way. Every choice he makes is right and good and just and fair and brings glory to himself. We could never do that. And so when it comes to this doctrine of divine election, honestly, one of the things you have to do is you have to remove yourself from the equation and say, this is God at work. I just have to embrace, this is what he chooses to do, okay? Now, what they're saying, though, is the Jews are struggling with these words because they know the truth about his parentage, that, that he's not from heaven, but from Joseph and Mary. Their pride then is getting in the way of them seeing the God or the Son of God before them. So Jesus has to put some things in perspective for them. He's trying to tell them, listen, it's God that takes all of the credit, all of their effort, all of their work, all the things that they have tried to do to to impress God, to please Him is of no use. It is the Father who ultimately draws and gives. So our working... Our, 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 our efforts, our laws, our, our, our obedience, you might even say, to what we perceive God expects us to do or be, all fall short. We can't impress ourselves into heaven. The beauty here is that we are drawn. And one of the things we can do is we can get angry at this, and this is where our pride rises up, or we can say, this is incredible. See, the, the, the doctrine of divine election drives us to a place of either wrestling because we're proud or being humble before God who says, this is what I choose to do. And he's calling for the Jews here to be humble. He's calling for us to simply embrace that the Godhead is acting and working in such a way as to bring men and women to the cross. We have no say in it. We can't manipulate God to do our will. His will in this regard, get this, has been settled before the creation of the world. Now, I'm not coming to that conclusion because of my reasoning. That's what Scripture says. That's what God says about himself. Now, I can't explain it all. And quite honestly, I don't understand why God would draw one person and not Another, except to say, as I said before, that he's perfect, he's just, he's holy, he's without any prejudice. And when he draws and when he gives, it's pure, it's right, it's just, it's fair, and it brings glory to his name. That is why, friends, we sing the song Amazing Grace. Now, it's incredible to me that you can go you know, in the secular world and people will sing this song and have no clue what it's talking about. Just listen to the first stanza. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, how many people in our culture would call themselves wretches? People, well, I'll sing it. It's culturally popular, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Now we know what Newton was getting at there. We don't sing that song telling God how great we are because we were lost, but we found our way back home. We don't sing that song saying we were blind, but we somehow were able to gain our sight back. The whole point there is that we were lost and helpless. We were blind and couldn't see. And it was God that came, and he breathed life into us. He took us from lostness into a place of understanding and safety and care. He took us from blindness, and he brought us into a place where we could see. And it's not because of anything we did. It is because of his grace. And that's why it is amazing. Okay, And that's just the first stanza. That's why we sing praises to his name. We didn't do it. He did it. We didn't deserve it. He deserves all the praise and the glory. So ultimately, when we, when we wrestle with this doctrine of divine election, we simply say, God, this is what you do. And I'm amazed at what you do. And now, when I see myself as one of your children, I am humble before you because there's nothing that I have done myself to enter into this and to say, Look at me, I deserve this. I don't deserve any of it, but I'm thankful for it. See, God's divine election is a great humiliator in a proper sense so that we don't think that there's anything great about us, that we are simply sinners deserving death, who have, by God's graciousness, been given satisfaction through his Son, who is the bread of life. Now, this is not just the New Testament teaching. Jesus is going to tell us that. It's also something that was true in the Old Testament. He says there, verse 45, it was written in the prophets, and this is what it says, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he, talking about himself, who is from God has seen the Father. So the expression here, and they will be taught by God, is a quote, and you can write this down, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13. And Isaiah there says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. What is this teaching by the Lord? Their eyes are going to be opened up. Their, their ability to see, um, see God, their ability to, to be aware of, of being a part of God's community fellowship is because of the teaching that is taking place. And how are children taught by the Lord? And we're thinking Old Testament now. They're taught, taught ultimately by a prophet who is speaking for God. And that prophet uses words. And through the lips of a prophet, you could hear from God. And so this teaching was going on. But there's also this dynamic of, a, of an inward, might want to say, ministry. And that would be the inward ministry of the Holy Spirit working on the heart. And friends, this is how it works with us. We, we, are, we are faced with the Word of God, but we are also impacted by the Holy Spirit who is interacting with that Word and pressing it on our hearts. It's not just here is the Bible and here's a text of scripture and here's literature and we read it. It's like, oh, isn't that cool? Hmm, that inspired me. No, it's the Holy Spirit who is actively at work. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This describes what it's like to be a person without God who, who is not. Uh, a child of God, wrestling with the text of Scripture. Look at verse 14. The natural person, that's describing a person who doesn't know God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The natural person doesn't have the equipment, doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the ability to understand what is being taught as we've gone through the Gospel of John. Haven't we seen that? Here are all these spiritual truths, spiritual truths, spiritual truths, and the crowd's like, oh, we want more food. We're not getting it. That's because they don't have the Holy Spirit at work in their heart. And friends, this is, this is where these two come together. It's not just the Word by itself. The Word is always connected to the Holy Spirit as far as its ability to penetrate the heart. So we don't just say, I want, I'm just going to memorize the Word. That's it. Understand, when you, when you put the Word of God into memory, you're also calling for the Holy Spirit then to impact that Word on your heart. It's those two things together that God is calling for. And that's what he's, that's what he's expressing here. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. So everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what he says. The Father has taught. The Father has given you. Oh, by the way, where are we? We're in a synagogue. What happens in a synagogue? Someone stands up and reads what? If you were going to learn from God, this was the place you were going to do it. This was the, you know, the, the structural, religious system f- uh, format by, by way that they were going to actually receive and, and, and teach and, and, and uh, express the Word of God to the people that were there. Now, everyone who has this divine drawing or illumination from the Holy Spirit, get this, will come to Christ. A person who has this window open to them of understanding is a person that has been regenerated, is a person who's had life breathed into them, and a person who has this illumination by virtue of the Holy Spirit will come to Christ. They will become a Christian, not a Jehovah's Witness, not a Mooney, not a Muslim, not a Mormon, but a follower of Christ. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit, with the Word, acts upon a heart. Everyone is by nature ignorant of God, but only God can turn the hearts of people. Now, This is one of the problems, friends, that we have in our American Christian culture. We don't think that we are as bad off as we really are. You know, the word depravity is not something that people like to hear about. And depravity doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't do good things. It just means in your whole being, there is nothing that you do that is oriented to God at all. You cannot, by yourself, find your place pleasing God. It is, all your righteousness, Scripture says, is what? Filthy rags. It is repulsive to God if you're trying to impress him. And this is the beauty of God's divine election. It's like, you are doing this. You are at work. Now, I can't, I can't see all of it taking place in the moment. But like I said, looking back, it's like, you are at work there and you were there, and, and you were at work there, and now things starting to make sense. Amazing, God, how you've worked in my life. So every, this is also important for us to know, every single case, and I did check this up, every single case where the word draw is used in Scripture, it is used to draw something that is resisting. The whole idea of resisting, think about, think about drawing up a net full of fish. Are those fish resisting? Or they're like, oh, finally, someone's caught us, right? No, the whole point is you're drawing something that is pulling away. And friends, left to ourselves, we don't want God. That is the lie, friends, of, might want to say, the modern church growth movement that emphasizes a seeker-sensitive approach, saying, well, people are looking, they're looking for something, but they're not looking for ultimately God. It is God that is drawing them. That's a whole other discussion. But if the emphasis is on the seeking, we have stepped away because no man seeks God, Scripture tells us. It is God that seeks him. It is God that draws. It is God that gives. It is God that is at work. And it's a beautiful picture, and it does drive us to the place of humility. Now, I think it's also important to say this that this statement is not used to describe a kingdom that is closed to a select few, which is often how people present or perceive this whole concept and this whole teaching of divine election. But it is used to describe how the kingdom is open to those who would not come, but do come because the Father draws them. I mean, here is the beauty of the kingdom, and over here are all these people, and they're like, We don't want anything to do with that. And here God is coming and he's drawing you and he's pulling you into the kingdom. And he's going back after someone else and he's pulling you into the kingdom. See, we got this idea in American Christianity. It's like, well, you know, you can be a Christian. You can be this. I just got to make my own choice. And, And the real wisdom and the strength is that I made the decision to follow Christ. No, without... God drawing you, you would not. It is God that draws you and brings you into his fold. So, to their grumbling, Jesus says, It is God who draws me to himself, um, or draws men to himself through me. And friends, that should remove any self-smugness and replace it with a heart of humility. Listen, if God drew me when I wasn't wanting to be brought into his kingdom, then there's nothing that I can say, God, look at me, I'm great, can I come in? It just drives me to a place of humility. You may know the song, Rock of Ages. Just think about what we've talked about and and this, this stanza from Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is all God at work. This is God pulling me. This is God doing what He wants. Friends, sometimes I think we run the risk of singing the song instead like this Something in my hand I bring, also of the cross I sing. I've always tried to look my best, slightly flawed. I passed the test. God, I'm sure, will not pass me by if I but try and try and try. See, the the beautiful humiliation, when I say that, I mean in a positive sense, is that God, in his wisdom and his grace, sought me out, sought you out, and drew us to himself. It's amazing grace. So, the Jews are grumbling, but they're also arguing. and The basis of their arguing is found in what Jesus says next. Notice what it says here. Um, it's actually a repetition of things he's already said, except with one twist. And let's read verses 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of this world is my flesh. Now just think of the spiral. Think of him, even in this discourse, adding and adding and adding. Up to this point, when Jesus has talked about himself being the bread of life, eating the bread of life for satisfaction has always been implied. But now he specifically says, if anyone eats this bread, and then he says, and the bread I give is my flesh. So now he's specifically talking about eating something, and that something is the bread of life, and that something, as he's identified, is himself, right? All right? Now, let's move on then to the second point, because that's all the basis now of why they are arguing. The Jews argue because of his teaching look at verse 52 the jews then disputed with jesus is that what it says no it says they disputed among themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat that's interesting they're arguing there's a debate going on in the synagogue about what jesus is saying what is he saying does he actually mean that we are to eat him Is that what he's saying? I mean, literally, is that what he's calling for? And if you take it literally, as some have done in church history, you end up with what is called transubstantiation. Where during the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, which we're going to celebrate in just a little bit, there's this belief that as I eat the bread or the wafer or I drink the blood, it actually becomes the true blood and body of Jesus Christ. And this is where they get it from. They take a literal understanding of what Jesus is saying. He is not being literal here, though. He's being metaphorical. What we need to do here, um, well, first of all, we need to understand that the Old Testament specifically forbids any form of cannibalism and the drinking of blood. So you understand why they're arguing. Again, if you're just thinking on human terms, this is all very offensive. And you can understand why they're they're disputing. This is not like a, well, let's see, uh, what do you think, uh, Levi over there? Well, actually, I think. No, this is is heavy, intense arguing that's going on, okay? Now, um, what we need to do here is we need to, first of all, just understand that this idea of flesh has already been talked about in uh, the Gospel of John. So let's just look at a couple of places that that is true. Um, look, if you would, please, at chapter 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, sorry, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. That means that Jesus was incarnate. He, he, he came to this earth, took upon himself um, the, the, you know, the, the, the uh, figure of, of man. He took upon himself um, humanity, and uh, not just the figure. He actually took upon himself full humanity. And then we find him being described again in chapter 1 and verse, it should be not 29, not 19, um, that he is described there as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So as this, as this person, as this one who is taken off on flesh, he is also the one that ultimately is going to die, is going to be that Lamb slain. Okay? Now, one of the reasons we, we know that... that What's being talked about here is not to be taken literal. I mean, you could also step back and look at other passages of Scripture and say, you know, that when it's being talked about here, it's clearly not talking specifically about eating the body of Jesus. It's talking figuratively about being satisfied with who he is and what he has done on the cross to provide that that satisfaction, that spiritual satisfaction. But um, I would just recommend we go to John chapter 6 and verse 63, where he says, My flesh... Profits nothing. It's the Spirit that gives life. My fresh flesh profits nothing. The words that I give to you, they are the spirit. They are the life. It's not, my flesh isn't the point here. As far as eating my flesh physically, literally. That flesh is describing what Jesus Christ ultimately would accomplish on the cross. Now, friends, listen, I know, I know this is a little heady. And I know we're kind of going through Yosemite, and we're going through turns and corners and all this kind of stuff, and you might be getting lost. But understand, what we have here is just a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ says he is and what he has done. He's, to- he's telling us here that not only do we need to eat, but we need to feed on him. Verse 53. Notice Jesus' response here. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Aha! There's something going on here. And what we need to do here is we need to compare Scripture with Scripture to help us understand what it is that Jesus is saying to make sure that we're not coming out with a literal interpretation. I'm not trying to force that hand. I'm just trying to show you why this is metaphorical. It's really important for us. So we're going to compare two passages of Scripture. Look, if you would, please, at John chapter 6 and verse 40. John chapter 6 and verse 40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what do you need to do in order to have eternal life? You need to look and believe, right? Then you go back now to verse 53 and verse 54. Truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see the formula there? Same formula if you do X. Y, and Z. If you do A, B, C, then you'll be raised up. So how do we know that this is figurative? Because this is a parallel statement to what he said in verse 40. All right? Everyone who looks and believes has eternal life, and I will raise him up. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up. So what we have here is a parallel in these verses that says, Eating and drinking equals looking and believing. You with me so far? So, to eat and to drink is saying that I believe, I'm looking, I'm grasping, I'm resting, I'm satisfying myself in that person who is the bread of life. It's not saying physically eat as if some magical thing's going to happen if I just bite. Listen, our relationship with God is a heart relationship isn't it it's not just a physical relationship so what if you eat something and put it in and ingest it what does that tell maybe you're hungry i remember when i was a kid probably about oh 10 or so and go to church with my parents i i used to love communion sunday because in that church they would have they would have a loaf of bread and they would break up a loaf of bread and they make it and they would hand it out. But there was always a big chunk of bread still left. And you know how the kids here after church, you know, what, what's the big thing is, you know, who can get the, the roll of blue tape, right? That's the big thing here, right? On communion Sunday there, it was like, who can get to the loaf of bread? Because we'd be off in the side room chomping down on the leftover bread here, okay? The parallel here then is that it's, it's not literal. It is, uh, it is really a... Figurative expression, and it really is um, something that represents something else that we're doing. And that's why when we celebrate the Lord's table, we don't believe that something magical or mystical is happening. In that, um, there are spiritual things happening, but nothing, I want to say, mystical. There's no infusion of grace that's taking place there. It is a remembrance, it's a memorial. But even when we memorize and we, and we take time to think about what happened, there are spiritual things that are taking place. And we'll clarify that in just a little bit. So the parallel here then is looking and believing is the same as eating flesh and drinking blood. Now, I really enjoy historical fiction. Anyone here enjoy historical fiction? I do. Um, I, I uh, got into it a number of years ago as I was on a trip and I was at an airport and I was bored and I thought, oh, I'm going to find a book and read. And I happened to pick one up and just really, really got into it. Well, I love the use of, of history as kind of a fabric to tell a story. And oftentimes, the historical fiction is the telling of a story in, in the details of history. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're enjoying a story, but you're also learning about history. It's not a bad way to learn about things, as long as the, the author is being accurate about things that are taking place. Uh, one of my favorite writers is uh, Bernard Cornwell. You may know him. He does a lot of stuff with, with um, uh, particular British History uh, as it is around the world. Um, And I remember one time when his book Agincourt was coming out. Now, you may know nothing about Agincourt, but Agincourt was one of the key battles in English history. (laughs) Um, And uh, um, it was during the Hundred Years' War in France, and uh, the British were outnumbered like 30,000 French to about 6,000 soldiers. I mean, and we're talking about, you know, knights in shining armor, that kind of stuff. Well, maybe not so shining. Um, but the English ended up winning that battle and how that took place and, and all the circumstances that led to it. And I, just, I remember when it came out, I just could not wait to get it, and it came in the mail, and I remember getting it. It was like, I can't put this down. You guys know what I'm talking about? And we used the expression, I devoured that book. I thought of nothing, although there were other things I was thinking of, But it was that book. I just, I had to get to the end. I wanted to get to the end. And when I had to set it aside, I'm thinking, I wonder how this is going to play out and why did that happen and here and that. And then you get back it's like, oh. And when you're done, you're like, oh, no. What's next, right? It's like, I shouldn't have rushed through this. Right? Now, I want to focus in on that word, devour. Because I think that's the idea that, that God wants us to see from this idea of him being the bread of life. When we, when we, when we eat or we feed on Jesus, it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just going down the smorgasbord and say, yep, I'll take some of that, boom, and that's it. He wants us to be feeding on him day by day by day and enjoying who he is and the lifelong satisfaction that he brings. So let's put some of these things in, into some perspective here he wants us to get to the place where we're saying i want more i want more i want more so you're going through yosemite you're like i want more trees i want more valleys i want more streams i want more rock formations i'm just i'm loving where i'm at and i realize sometimes it can get a little mundane but i just i'm in awe and i'm loving it now friends you know that your christian walk and get to the place where it's like eh, another tree but he's saying listen Devour me. Be consumed by me in your walk. So flesh and blood are figurative expressions for what Jesus will accomplish ultimately on the cross for these uh, these Jews. And for us, um, it represents what he has already done. So to their arguing, Jesus says, you must feed on my flesh and drink my blood. I know you only have one blank there, but I put a couple in there. You must look and believe. All right? And uh, that's the idea there. Now, what's important here is that, as we've seen in this passage so far, where, where, where they are grumbling, to his grumbling, Jesus says, it is, it is the Father who draws, right? To their um, arguing, Jesus says, you must feed. <laughs> See, both of these are all part of God's Divine sovereignty in salvation. God draws, but you must what? Feed. You must believe. It is all God. You cannot respond to God except that he comes and seeks you out. But in that seeking out, you do respond. You do react. You do Align, you say, or orient yourself to God by believing, by embracing, by being satisfied, and by devouring and feeding on Him. You get that? These are two two realities that are taking place. I don't control God's divine election. That's what He's doing and drawing me and gifting me to His Son. But here I am receiving all this attention from Him, and my my world is opened up to Him. My my heart is is. Is flittering because I I know that there's something at work here. I'm beginning to understand spiritual realities, and so I'm coming now, and and I'm responding to what God is doing by belief in Him. And that's this feeding that is taking place. These are two beautiful gems in the crown of God's gospel. And they work simultaneously. They work hand in hand. You can't divide them except to say one is all God, the other one is because of God, but requires my action. It's it's all part of the same thing, working together. Now, I didn't even put that up there. There you go, for those of you that have to have that. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I um, in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whatever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So our life then is a reflection of Jesus' activity and relationship with his Father. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. So we can ultimately rest in the assurance that having begun a good work in us, he will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. That means when he's returning, when he comes again. Now, uh, I want to just quickly give you the practical things here that, that uh, we're going to see as we continue on in the gospel, but it's laid out here for us. What happens practically when a person who is drawn by God and feeds on the flesh and blood of Christ, what happens to that that person. The first thing is that there's a promise of eternal life. We've seen that, right? You will have life. That has been described already as eternal life. We know ultimately that is described in other places as abundant life too, okay? So you, you are the recipients of eternal life. The second thing that you are the recipients of, and this, this goes back now um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of verses. Um, well, let me just put it up there. Um, Oh, yeah, it's from verse, uh, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. Aha. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that's a theme, right? That is something we'll find. It is abiding life. John 15, I believe. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, I, am the, and then the, I am the vine. He who abides in me and I in him. That, that whole interplay here of what's going on in the believer and this whole word abiding. And then there is the promise of, and this comes right out of this passage, resurrection life. And I will raise him up in the last day. And I will raise him up. How does that raising up take place? It comes by virtue of God drawing people to himself, giving those that he is drawing to Christ. When those people are given to Christ, they are actually coming to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they are believing because they're feeding on him. Right? That's, that's in a nutshell what's going on in this passage. And in, you know, to, to the grumbling, he responds by saying, your issue is pride, what you need is humility. and, and the, In other words, you cannot do anything to earn this eternal life. To their arguing, he says, listen, um, you need to recognize and you need to comprehend that you need to feed and find your satisfaction, not in a literal interpretation, but in a figurative interpretation, satisfaction That is in me, in me alone. This is the bread that came down from heaven, verse 58. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and what? Died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Just uh, just a quick note. I think it's interesting that he brings up the fact that they're in a synagogue. The synagogue being the center of religious instruction. And it should remind us that even sitting in, might want to say, the contemporary center of biblical instruction, the church, that we can hear the Word of God, we can hear truths of God being taught, and still be at a place where we are blind, that our pride is getting in the way of our seeing, that we're not able to comprehend, and we're not feeding on Him. We've allowed ourselves to subtly embrace a doing kind of form of Christianity as opposed to a living kind of form of Christianity. It's what Ilya was saying earlier, if you caught that. It's so easy to slip into this kind of regulative, um, legalistic do's and don'ts, checkoffs, as opposed to just, God, I want to feed on you today. Well, I guess a couple of the final questions would be Is this is do, you, do you long for him? Do you long to be settled in your heart? that he is totally in control? Do you long to be satisfied in the assurance that you are his child and that you are uh, forgiven of your sins? So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute. Let me just say a few words just about that as it connects to what we're talking about here. The Lord's Supper is not a mystical thing. You will not take any of the wafers or any of the juice here. It will not become the blood of Jesus. It will not become his body. It is simply something that you swallow and will stay, you know, a piece of bread or a wafer and stay juice. The reason we celebrate the Lord's table is to remember. And in remembering, we celebrate. And there's, there's this kind of, you might want to think of it this way, it's kind of almost like a, like a reboot of your computer. You kind of go back to the basics again. Why is it that I'm here? Because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And we might come to the place that even in the course of a month, we're like, yeah, I did this, and I did this, and God, look at me, whoo you know. And it's like, no, 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 humility. You drew me when I was resisting. And I have fed on you. And Lord, I want to thank you for what you have done. And this is an opportunity for us to remember. It's also an opportunity for us. It forces us. It's a beautiful checks and balance for us to say, God, is there anything that I have that is unconfessed sin? It's an opportunity for us to look in our heart and allow the Holy Spirit to have freedom. And there's a couple of different responses. One can be, I'm not going to repent of it. And to you who wrestle with that and say, I'm not going to repent of it, I would encourage you, don't take it. Because you're taking it in an unworthy way. You're taking it in, in an act of, of You know, God, I'm rebelling against you, but I want to celebrate you. Those two things don't go together. But if you're saying, God, I struggle with this sin. I am am burdened by this sin. I don't want to do this, and I come to you again asking for forgiveness. You are exactly the person who needs to come. You need it. I just caution you. If you are being stubborn in your heart to God, this is not what you need to do because it will harden your heart to go through the motions of celebrating the Lord's table. But if you are struggling in sin and you're saying, God, I fail, I've fallen, but I want you and I need you and I hunger for you, come, taste, enjoy. Metaphorically, in who Jesus is. God is drawing, will you feed on him today? Lord, help us as we now celebrate your Lord's table. We thank you for being the bread of life. We thank you, Lord, that that you are the one that satisfies every need and craving that we have, Lord, if we would only turn to you rather than to other things. We praise you, Lord, because we have been wandering in this world, and yet you have drawn us, even though we've resisted that drawn, Lord, you've drawn us and you've brought us into your family and you have changed us. You've declared us righteous because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We deserve none of it, Lord. It truly is amazing grace. And yet, Lord, at the same time, you want us to feed on your son. And Lord, I just ask today that we would revive that heart attitude, that we would just long to be satisfied by you afresh, spending time with you, thinking about you, being consumed by you, Lord, devouring you in our lives. Help us, Lord, now as we reflect on what we've learned and what we've seen. And Lord, as we reflect on what you have done for us on the cross, would you be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.